Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this episode of Sky Talkers, where we are covering the finale of Andor, episode 12, airing on November 23rd, the day before Thanksgiving, written by Tony Gilroy and directed by Benjamin Karen once again. Oh, boy, guys, we made it here to the finale, and I am not ready to say goodbye to this show. Me neither, me neither. I know that tomorrow is Thanksgiving, and I am thankful for 12 amazing episodes of Andor. (laughs) I don't want to say goodbye. There is so much to cover in this specific episode, by the way, that I know we're going to miss things. So I just want to say that up front so that I'm resolved of all guilt about missing something. (laughs) This was so good, and this past season has just been such an amazing ride. And yeah, where do we even start? I, I got to say, though, I love the idea of, you know, has your fa- family ever done that thing where you like go on the table, say one thing you're thankful for, and everyone's so sentimental, you know, family, all of you here today, and it's going to be my turn. I'm going to be like, and or. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm thankful for Diego Luna. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always thankful for Diego Luna. So. <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. I'm thankful for Tony Gilroy. Yeah, no, Thank me you, too. Tony. Me too. Me too. I'm thankful <laughs> yeah. for a lot of people uh, in yeah. the Andor yeah. world, namely all of them. Yes. So, <laughs> namely every, every single, single one. one. I'm thankful for B2 and I'm thankful for yeah. Brassos. So, yes. That's, yeah. <laughs> the standouts of this episode for you? Uh, everyone was a standout for this episode for me, honestly. Yeah. Like, I can't really pick a favorite. Uh, this cast has done an incredible job throughout the entire season. And I think this was such a good finale. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways really mirrored uh, some of like episode three, for example, kind of closing out that first arc that we saw of the season. Just, I don't know, the the tone of it felt very similar to me. And of course, this idea of leaving Ferrix is very similar to episode three. But all parties you know, met back on Ferrix and nothing felt contrived. Nothing felt like, why is this person here again? It all clicked into place. And, oh, man. I think the place we should start, though, is the very beginning with the music. And Mm -hmm. this is something we've been talking about all season is the music of Andor. You know, we had a chance to actually sit down at a roundtable with the composer, Nicholas Bertel, and uh, it was a great conversation. And the music and the orchestration is actually something that Diego Luna talked about a lot before the show came out, too. And everyone was kind of talking about this piece of music that was played on set and that that piece of music had been developed before the show even started filming. I remember Diego saying that's how important it is to the scene and to the episode. And he's like, it's played on set and it is so important. And of course, that piece of music we finally see in the finale, it is the Ferrix band uh, playing for Marva's funeral. And it that is the Andor theme. And wow, I was just so emotional about it. <laughs> Me too. Me too. And also there's a couple. Yes. Okay. So the first shot of the Andor logo for me when I was like, oh, this is interesting because there's a new theme every single episode. It's a new different orchestration, right? New, new piece. 
when I first heard it in the very beginning, I was like, oh, that's kind of off key. That's kind of weird. And then, of course, when we see the band playing for the funeral, it all clicked and it is also cohesive. And then the fact that it's the Andor theme, there's a moment where it really all kind of comes together mm-hmm. and they're walking down Rick's Road. And uh, when the um, like the beat sort of changes and it gets a little bit faster, it was so intense. It was so good. And it was just so cohesive. And uh Emmy for Nicholas Patel, please. And please. Emmy for everyone. Just every every everyone deserves an person. Emmy. I want this show to get all of the awards and accolades. It deserves it. Yeah, this is where I get on my soapbox and say that award shows just like really don't like Star Wars, and it's really annoying. Yeah, and uh, they often recognize. Like, Orange shows often recognize Star Wars and Lucasfilm for visual effects, which is great, and they deserve that. But this show in particular deserves a lot more nominations than just visual effects. Mm-hmm. Um, it does deserve that, too. And I think that the thing about this particular episode that really struck me was, yes, all roads lead back to Ferrix. Everything is all coming together. A finale episode is always a good time because there's a part of you as an audience member that is watching it. And you're being like, oh, this is where everything is going to click. Like, we're going to find out things in this episode that we've been wondering about for the past episodes. Everything is coming together, right? And I I was thinking about that with Mon Mothma's scene in particular. Um, Her scenes, I was like, wow, we're really like finding out things. Things are going to be good. Yeah, not, I mean, not to interrupt, but I think that. I think this finale worked really well because I don't feel like there was this huge cliffhanger, this huge reveal in it. Uh, It all felt very natural, I think, leading to this conclusion for the series. Uh, I'm sure that's aided by the fact that we do know that Cassian joins the Rebellion in some capacity. I know last week we had talked about the possibility of, you know, Luthen dying or something like that. So I, I suppose that could have changed Cassian's trajectory into the rebellion but I think it works really well that here you know throughout this whole season right we talked about this last week of season one being the education of Cassian Andor and he has seen so much and experienced so much and really seen the full weight of the empire throughout this season and now the very last scene is him formally joining Luthen on this this network with the rebellion and I think that that was such like a good way to wrap up this season and that there wasn't any Yeah, like huge, you know, mic drop kind of reveal, I think, that we're used to in a lot of finales. Yeah, I I was thinking about what this finale's theme really was. And I think that we've talked so much in the past couple episodes about sacrifice. And I think this episode really shows that when you make the sacrifice, is it worth it? And how, how deep does that worth run? And I feel like in this episode, you really see that. You see that with Marva. You see that with literally every single person. And it was just really satisfying, I think. It was it was a great season finale. Leave me, it left me wanting more. Yeah, I think even thinking about the theme of sacrifice with Cassian, at the end of this, right, he goes to Luthen ready to die. You know, you can kill me or you can take me in. And he's fully ready to be shot, I think, by Luthen. Uh, I'm sure Cassian would have figured out a way out of it, and he knows that Luthen wants him in the rebellion. That's how they met, of course. But, you know, it's very gutsy for Cassian 
to go to the ship and tell him, you know, you can kill me or you can, you know, take me into whatever this is. And that's, you know, that's a pretty big sacrifice. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Okay, let's get going into our character parts. This one I feel like is going to be a little bit tougher to separate the different characters in in the ways that we had in the past in our past episodes, just because it feels like literally everything is converging on Ferrix, which is really satisfying, but it's also kind of hard to keep track of, I think, or at least hard to separate out for the sake of a podcast. Okay, so let's start with Dedra and Cyril. Okay, so it was interesting, I think, to see Dedra and both Cyril kind of descend upon Ferrix and think that they're going to get their way. Um, I feel like Dedra's whole situation in this um, in this part was really interesting to me because I felt like uh, I I thought she was making a lot of mistakes similar to what Cyril was making, meaning that she it felt like she was like sort of in over her head in a lot of ways. Um, I <laughs> I think that uh, we even at the end get um, Cyril saving. Dedra, which so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Their whole relationship is just so weird. And I don't know what to make of it, but that closet scene was like, I don't know, interesting, (laughs) intense. Yeah. It could have been an elevator scene in Star Wars. Yeah. It was just, it was, um, and the fact that he was like, I'm Cyril. And she's like, I know that. <laughs> so good. I don't know. I, their relationship is fascinating. And it just um, continues to take a lot of turns that I cannot predict. But uh, what did you think about their dynamic and what was going on with Dedra in this episode? Well, we talked about Cyril last episode and how, you know, his his ultimate morality was kind of, as Tony put it, still up for grabs. And I think this episode, you know, we know that he came to Ferrick specifically you know, to kill Cassian or get Cassian and clear his name. But as soon as he sees Dedra, that's where his focus is, right? He keeps trying to cross the road when he's not supposed to. He, you know, of course, saves her by pretending to arrest her or take her, um, be part of the mob that's trying to take her down. You know, it's it's very interesting that he kind of only has eyes for Dedra. <laughs> Even when he first sees her, he's like, she's here. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it, I think it is a really fascinating dynamic and thinking about where Cyril could go in the future, right, about, you know, does he fully join the Empire, the Rebellion, neither, something different. It feels like he's fully joined Dedra even over the Empire, like something he, he is fully invested in her, I think, and I kind of think we'll follow whatever she tells him to do in the future. Unless, some- but will he wake up to that potentially? I, I mean, I think he could. That's the thing. Like, I think he always could. And I think next season we'll see. I think he might have not a similar arc, but I don't know, kind of like a similar trajectory to Dedra, right? Like how we kind of were rooting for her in the underdog sense, but then suddenly there was a switch and we were all like, oh, okay, <laughs> no mm-hmm. more. <laughs> mm-hmm. I kind of wonder if something like that will happen with Cyril uh, and his relationship with Dedra. And will that switch, will he kind of come out on top on his own or will he abandon Dedra and what she's doing? I don't know. But I think I think next season we'll see him with her 
uh, following her lead, whatever that is. And I guess the question remains is if he will break out of that or if he will continue down that path. But I think he's continuing down it for now. As far as Dedra is concerned herself, I thought this was really interesting because we have a bit of a flashback back to the IS, not flashback, but scene cut back to the ISB. And she's complaining to her supervisor, again, whose name we still have not written down, about, you know, not leaving anyone from Krieger's crew alive and how that was such a mistake. And the supervisor's like, this isn't a dialogue. <laughs> like, you don't get a say here. And <laughs> she's really upset about that. And she... Yeah. Which, like, rightfully so. Again, this is her, like, project. They wouldn't have done that without her. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, the, the weird dynamics of rooting for her. It's yeah. It strikes again. And she's right. She's right, too. You know, there's no good from a dead body. And mm-hmm. uh, the supervisor points out, he goes, the whole point of this was to wipe the stain of Aldani from the emperor's mouth. So this isn't even about information. This is about a, a pub- publicity stunt, more or less, a, a show. I can't think of the word I'm looking for. But, you know, it's to show the galaxy what the empire what the emperor will do to people that cross him and do wrong by him. And Krieger is the representative of that, even though, of course, he had nothing to do with that. I think we also learned in this episode that they know that Krieger is not Axis, which is something that we had talked about last week, about them thinking that Krieger was Axis, but it sounds like they know that he's not, but still don't know who Luthen is. But this is another interesting piece is that Cyril crossed paths with Luthen in this episode and didn't recognize him. I wonder if he had been more focused, he would have, you know. Probably. Yeah, you know, because Luthen recognizes Cyril, but Cyril doesn't recognize Luthen. We have that moment where Luthen sees him and is like, oh, okay, I'm just going to avert my eyes real fast here. (laughs) Dedra, I can't wait to see where she's headed next season, especially after this huge failure on Ferex, which it's good parallel, honestly, because that's what um, we started off the season with was Cyril's failure on Ferex. And now we have Dedra's failure on Ferex. Yeah, I I wasn't expecting, to be honest, this finale to have a success, basically, from Ferex. I really thought that things... All in all, not a lot of people, like not a lot of our characters died in this episode, right? I really thought that this finale was going to be sort of a bummer Um, because it could have been, right? Because, but then it goes back to what Tony says about how there's nothing cynical about our show. There's a success story. There's the reason why sacrifice is necessary, why you keep fighting and you if you band together, <laughs> you'll you'll be successful. And uh, yeah, I think that you get that here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we had a pretty big success. It still seems like there were me, a lot of like, casualties. And sure. uh, our guy from, his name is Zan, I think, the guy who took Cassian's call last week and the guy who had that like hilarious scene in the very beginning of the season about that game. Remember, gave us like the Wikipedia article on Canari. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Um, He died. So that was kind of, that was sad. That was definitely sad. Yeah. There were like, definitely like C characters who died, which I'm not, don't want to not give that room, but we didn't really have a main character besides, I guess, Marva die, right? No. So, (laughs) no, Marva's alive. (laughs) I I would like to uh, cheers my four point theory from last week about Marva being alive. (laughs) 
<laughs> and you know what? Charles and I are still Marva is alive truthers. Gonna be gonna be real with you. Like I can I can live in a world in which Marva isn't. No, I need way, you, I need you I to think... commit to this. Don't be okay. wishy-washy. I, I know I I think I have to be wishy-washy. I think <gasps> you can commit to it and I will like I'll be behind you, but I think you need to lead the brigade and I need to have no, two feet. You always make me lead the weird, the crazy theory brigades. <laughs> you already you already laid it out, Kayla. It's already yours. (laughs) But I do agree. Like, there's some weirdness about the dialogue, especially her saying strange, I feel as if I can see you when she is giving her, like, her own eulogy, essentially. There's some weirdness there. I think that the the, the tunnels comment, I feel like it's a little bit of a, maybe not a red herring, but maybe it is a red herring. Maybe it's not. There's something there that I think that could be a reveal next episode. Not next episode because we have to wait two years. Next season <laughs> um, about her because she's such a good character. I don't want to lose her. I don't know. It just – I don't know. Some of the ways that they talked about her this episode, it just – it felt a little odd. I don't know. And I know that Cassian was upset, but particularly his conversation with Brasso's in the tunnels, I thought that some of the ways that they said things was still kind of weird to me. Like they didn't actually, they themselves didn't talk about her being dead. They didn't use that word. You know, Cassian comes in, he says, I wanted her to leave with me. And Brasso says, I know. And Cassian says, I came to get her. That's kind of weird, right? Like. He only came back to Ferrix because he knew that she was gone, right? It's not like he got there and found out that she died. Like, he knew when he called back on Space Miami that she had died. And, you know, then we get that lovely scene, um, that lovely little monologue about all of the things that Marva told Brasso's to say to Cassian, which was beautiful. And uh, I do really love these two men having a really emotional conversation about like someone that they loved, uh, like a mother figure. I don't know. I really enjoyed that. Me too. Uh, it felt well, very because heartfelt. yeah, Brazos totally Brazos is like the stand in son mm-hmm. for Cassian. And I, I feel like it really goes back to those first three episodes where we see this exchange of Brazos being so willing to cover for Cassian and this feeling that when you look into his eyes, you just trust him, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that has carried throughout this entire season. Even though we don't know that much about him, he is there for the family, right? He's there for – he's a B2 companion. He's willing to cover for Cassian so much so that he's willing to be this stand-in son especially and carry the brick for during the funeral. The stone. The stone. When I saw that, the stone, I was like, no. And B2 following behind him. I was like, well, (laughs) no. Yeah, but then at the end of their conversation in the tunnels, you know, Brasso says, I'll take care of Marva. You take care of yourself. And Cassian says, it's too late for that. And I don't know, just the I'll take care of Marva. I know that you can easily spin that. And he, you know, of course, he's talking about the stone here. But I don't know. It just, I think the, I think the language is a little flexible. Uh, So maybe they Mm -hmm. haven't, maybe they were still waiting to figure out what to do with Marva if she was going to live or die. I don't know. Uh, I would love to kind of. It might still be on the table. I know. I would love to kind of imagine this reality where Marva has like set up 
a whole network underground on Ferex and is running this huge rebellion network there with the daughters of Ferex. Um, I love the idea that it's the daughters of Ferex that uh, potentially are in charge of this whole operation too, this whole group of women. I really love that aspect of it too. Um, I don't know. I just, I want to, I don't know. I want her to be alive so bad, uh, <laughs> so badly. Uh, the other part that I cried at was, of course, when Cassian went to go rescue Bix and Bix tells him that he had it. She had a dream that he came to her and she says Marva was mm-hmm. here, too. And there's like this brief pause and Cassian says, wasn't she great? And it oh, my gosh, it just I don't know why that particular line just really got me. Uh, it made me really sad. And it's sad to think about Marva being gone. And it's sad to think about all these people leaving Ferrix at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, all of mm-hmm. our, you know, our our B our B characters from Ferrix are are leaving. And on the one hand, that makes me really excited uh, for what they could be doing next season because, you know, Bix is very clear at the end that Cassian will find them. And I believe that. And I believe that we'll see all these people again. And it makes me really excited, too, at the prospect of them having bigger roles, like particularly Pac's son. I don't think he has Mm -hmm. any dialogue in this episode, but he does such a great job of conveying his sorrow and his anger over what the Empire has done. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see what he does, too. And and he's this young kid as well. I think it'll be great to have him uh, in a larger role next season. And then, of course, I think her name is Jezzy, uh, one of the other daughters of Ferrix, who's actually flying the ship off of Ferrix with everyone in it. I don't know. It's just great. And I can't have that be the last conversation between B2 and Cassian. So. No, I can't. No, 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 no. I can't believe you just put that in, out in the universe. That's not happening. <laughs> when he was like, he was like, you always say that or I didn't get to see you. I, oh, I, I just, I. B2 has definitely taken the most emotional droid award ever. Yeah, I know. Ever. I know. When that Imperial officer kicks him over, I honestly, I can't. Like, I was so rattled by that and very disturbed because it, I mean, at the end of the day, like, this is just a set piece in a Star Wars television show, right? But it felt like a, like a a real living, breathing person. And I felt like really devastated by it. And it's, it's crazy how like a simple action, like flipping over a droid, but I think that the like physicality of B2 made me feel so sad about that Mm -hmm. because he's so bulky. He's kind of older. And I just, it just was like abusive and I just was really upset by it. Yeah. Well, and it, the way the scenes are cut to, it's like B2 sees Zan die uh, and then, like, we see Zandai, and then it cuts to B2 and his, you know, his little viewfinder eye, and he's clearly upset, too. I don't know. It's just, mm-hmm. I, yeah. <laughs> B2 really, he really got the emotions going in this episode. And that it's him, you know, playing this message of Marva, too. The fact that they would have recorded that together. It just, it's a lot. And, uh, I really need B2 and Cassian to be together again at some point because uh, B2 loves Cassian. And and even when they're getting on the ship, he's the first one to see Cassian. And is like, no, don't worry, guys. It's Cassian. It just, it's so precious. And 
yeah, I know we've like really jumped ahead to the very end of the episode, but it's okay. We needed we needed this time for B two. It's, it's important. Let's talk a little bit about Marva's eulogy and speech. Um, there's a lot of amazing nuggets in this speech. As usual, it's just written super well. But one thing I wanted to talk about, actually two things I really want to call out. Number one, her saying, I remember every time it happened, every time the dead lifted me with their truth. And now I'm dead and I yearn to lift you. Not because I want to shine or even be remembered. It's because I want you to go on. I want Ferrix to continue. Um, this line really struck me because if we're relating it to Cassian's story in Rogue One or just Rogue One in general, um, the concept, the entire movie, perhaps even the thesis statement of Rogue One is the dead lift the rebellion up, right? Which is the end of uh, Rogue One, the sacrifice that that entire crew made on Scarif for the rebellion to continue so that the Death Star could be blown up. And I think that her saying that, I think, underscores a lot of what Cassian's whole arc is. He's lifted by Marva in this speech, but everyone else is lifted by her sacrifice too. And I think that we can look ahead and see how this relates to Cassian and Jin and the whole crew there. I also want to call out her saying, there was a darkness reaching like rust into everything around us. We let it grow and now it's here. It's here and it's not visible. It's not visiting anymore. I want it wants to stay. The empire is a disease that thrives in darkness. It's never more alive than when we sleep. The line that really called out to me was there's a darkness reaching like rust into everything around us. Because in this episode, we actually got another Clem flashback, which I thought was great. And I, I think you did too. I I could use more, honestly, with Cassian's relationship to Clem. And I liked the line that Clem said to Cassian. And he said, people don't look down when they should. They don't look down and they don't look past the rust. Not us though, eh? Eyes open, possibilities everywhere. And just these two uses of the word rust and the concept of rust and looking past rust to possibility is exactly what Marva is saying in this speech. Darkness is reaching like rust into everything around us. How do you look past it? How do you get inspired by that darkness? How do you change it into light? And I think that's exactly what Marva is inspiring the people of Ferrix to do and in turn does inspire people, the people of Ferrix to do as well. Um, but I really like that callback and that sort of connection between Clem and Marva too um, and how this speech is also being done on Rick's road, which is where Clem was hung and she couldn't even get past that before. She would never even walk there. And here she is giving the speech there, almost in his honor, I think, in everyone's honor. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. And the use of rust, it's rust is something that can be like the flashback with Clem is showing that they're cleaning him and Cassian are cleaning uh, that tech that they're using. The rust can go away. You can get rid of the rust. And yeah, the the use of that word, too, is it's very Ferrix, right? And it just it fit really well. And I love the idea that Ferrix is built with the stones from people who have come before them, I think it really brings together this community aspect of Ferrix that we've been talking about so much. And I think being turned into a stone, a brick, it feels very uh, 
like brutalist in a lot of ways, very intense. Like what an intense thing to be made into after you die, like a rock. Um, I think we're used to Mm -hmm. hearing about things like trees and like being sent back to the earth as this like living thing, right? Uh, When your body decomposes and stuff like that. But I think a stone is much more, right? It's much more permanent and the brick component of it. And it's strong. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And that permanence there too. And so the way that Marva talks about it of uh, the uh, the dead lifting you, like literally lifting you, the stairs that you walk on being created by the dead and that that is an empowering thing rather than a spooky thing because I think you could take that in a spooky direction <laughs> too. But I think that I think that it uh, works really well for this world that they've built here on Ferex and the idea of a permanent stone being a part of the architecture around you and uh, literally and physically lifting you up. Uh, and if you really, you know, stop and think about that as a person of Ferex, the dead lifting you, inspiring you, taking you to new height, pushing you forward. I don't know. There's something I really liked. I really liked how Marva uh, kind of went through and, and explained how important this custom is to Ferex. And I think to speak, we talked about this last week, but the difference between them using brick, the word brick and the word stone. And I remember I had kind of pointed to that, that maybe that's a sign that Marva is actually alive. But Marva here uses the word stone. And they also have that chant of stone and sky, stone and sky, stone and sky. And so I think I would pivot my theory a little bit and use that rather as an example of the empire not fully understanding or caring to understand about the culture of Ferex and that it's not a brick, it's a stone. And it goes into this like larger tradition of, you know, something like stone and sky makes you think heaven and earth. There's a balance there. Makes me think of The Last Jedi talking about the force, you know, life and death and all of that. It just, it went together really well. And it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful monologue. And there are just so many good monologues <laughs> in this show. And I know this one is is very different, obviously, from Luthen's monologue, the other episode. But I think that Fiona Shaw imbues so much into it that even if the the speech itself isn't as, I might say, flowery as Luthen's was, it is just as impactful. And I think something that really struck me about it is I loved this idea of Luthen listening to Marva's speech and seeing its impact on the people of Ferex and seeing how important it is. And her talking about, um, you know, waking up early to fight these bastards. And right, we've talked so much about how word choice is important, specifically for someone like Tony Gilroy, that use of bastards. Uh, Luthen uses that word with Cassian in the very beginning. And I think, I don't know, I think that link is clear. And we're supposed to think of these uh, two people together, these two, what I think are pillars in Cassian's life now. I think Luthen will become one in Cassian's life uh, in next season and the way that they are able to inspire people around them in different ways. And Marva is so public with her inspiration, right? Whereas Luthen is forced to work behind the scenes. And I don't know, Luthen listening to Marva's speech, in a weird way, it gave me like some hope, some small hope for his own humanity. I don't know if it was, if I read it as kind of like recentering for him. I'm not really sure, but I really liked that he yeah, was there to hear it. I did too, because I think while his monologue 
to Lonnie a couple of episodes back was amazing, great. I think we understand understood his purpose and how much he had given up for this like beginning of the rebellion. I think he's exhausted. I think we saw that with Saw. Mm-hmm. I think he's becoming a little not even a little. He's becoming paranoid too in the similar way that Saw is, right? Because the whole concept of the reason why a couple of them were on Ferrix, right, was to kill Cassian and to cover their back because they know that Cassian knows their faces and who mm-hmm. they are. And I think that that th- way of thinking sort of loses sight of the even the concept of trust, trust going both ways, right? That's a line from Rogue One and how um, – how they're all kind of fighting for the same thing. And that's how you create a network, right? That's not, you don't create a network by like mistrusting a lot of different people. And I think that the speech was inspiring because it really showed a link between, you know, Marva's own priorities, then essentially like where Cassian came from. Right. Yeah. And how, um, I think on an individual level, Marva probably inspired Luthen, but I think that it made the wheels turn a little bit about how, Cassian is related to Marva and how that's where he comes from. And those are his priorities as well, especially now that he has the manifesto. Oh my God, we saw the manifesto, but I felt like it recentered the whole operation. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes, it it connects back to Marva's message to Cassian from Brasso's about, uh, tell him he needs He knows everything he needs to know and feels everything he needs to feel. And when the day comes and those two pull together, he will be an unstoppable force for good. Tell him I love him more than anything he could ever do wrong. Ooh, mm -mm -mm. yeah. (laughs) And one, one thing that's great, I think, is that we kind of see that in action in this episode. Obviously, right, Cassian joins Luthen at the end of it. But when Cassian is in the lookout tower, and he's getting the lay of the land, which I think also goes back to Clem's. I can't remember if you said this, but goes back to Clem's flashback of uh, people don't look down where they should. And the man who sees everything is more blessed than cursed. And Cassian is literally up high seeing all of these players come together on Ferrix and none of them are able to catch him, you know. So anyway, I think that was a good uh, flashback totally. but uh, or connection, I guess I should say. But the fact that. Cassian's moment of pause is him listening to the music when the band is coming down. But I don't know how much of Marva's speech he actually hears because he's rescuing Bix during that time. So that goodness of action is imbued in him. It's not like he heard Marva's speech and was like, yes. I'm going now. He was already in action. And it's like that little piece that Brasos gave him in the tunnels um, spurned him on. And he wasn't like his moment of pause wasn't listening to Marva's speech. He was already in action at that point. And I don't know. I think that's I think that's great because I think you could have had a version where Cassian is, you know, emotional and listening to the speech, which I think could have been really impactful in its own way. But I like this version where that speech isn't for him at this point. He's he's accepting the call to action and now he just needs to get Bix out. Yeah, definitely. I was really happy on like sort of just a basic level that Cassian spent a lot of this episode saving Bix. Mm-hmm. It felt like that needed to happen. I, we've, we've seen her, I, I hesitate to use this kind of language because I think it's unfair, but sort of deteriorate 
over the past couple of episodes and it's been really sad and really sad to see. And I, to have that realization from Cassian and realize that she's in, in danger and in trouble. And Mm -hmm. he, for all intents and purposes, goes into the castle and sort of storms the, storms the guards and takes her out of the evil castle. Right. And brings her to safety, which is great. I mean, I, I really wanted that. And I, I really like that that was a huge part of Cassian's story here. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I think we we fully jumped ahead in a lot of this episode, and I think we need to spend some time on Nemec's manifesto. Uh, yes. Because this is a huge thing we've been talking about throughout the series. Where is the manifesto? When's it coming back? And we finally... Well, oh, go ahead. What you were saying earlier, This is, I just want to say this before I forget. Um, what you were saying earlier about how Cassian doesn't hear Marva's speech, it's interesting because I think Marva's speech maybe isn't for Cassian. It's yeah. for everyone else on Ferrix. But Nemec's manifesto is for Cassian. So if we can think that Marva's speech is to the Ferrix residents as is Nemec's manifesto is to Cassian, yeah. I think that that sort of makes sense, right? Like yeah. we have two monologues of oppression going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Um, I think it's worth it to read Nemec's manifesto because he always, you know, he had some zingers back on Aldon. Yeah. So this yeah. is what uh, the section that Cassian listens to of his manifesto. There will be times when the struggle seems impossible. I know this already. Alone, unsure, dwarfed by the scale of the enemy. Remember this. Freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction. Random acts of insurrection are occurring constantly throughout the galaxy. There are whole armies, battalions that have no idea that they've already enlisted in the cause. Remember that the frontier of the rebellion is everywhere, and even the smallest act of insurrection pushes our lines forward. And remember this, the imperial need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural. Tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks, it leaks. Authority is brittle. Oppression is the mask of fear. Remember that. And know this, the day will come when all the skirmishes and battles and these moments of defiance will have flooded the empire's banks of authority, and then there will be one too many. One single thing will break the siege. Remember this. Try. And it's just, you know, just how many times can we say the writing is good on this show? Um, one more time. Our, our our life writing isn't as good as Tony Gilroy writing. It's like we, we're like, the writing is good. Right. If our world's writing was better, then we wouldn't just say the writing is good. Right. Like we'd say something that is... <laughs> Nemikian, if I can. Right? Right? It's yeah. just one, I loved hearing Nemik's voice again. Uh, and I knew when we saw him in the in the, you know, last week on Andor, uh, that this was coming around. And I was very excited uh, to hear it. Although the flashback did show us the moment when Nemik died, like when he got crushed. And I did not appreciate that because that actually no, did scar yeah. me a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But this uh I, this was just so such a good, I think, synopsis of where the rebellion is right now and also part of what Luthen was trying to do, too. And it works so well with Marva and her speech later on because Marva doesn't know who Luthen is. She doesn't like she knows about the rebellion, but she's not joining the rebellion. She's rebelling on Ferrix. And 
leading others to rebel on Ferex. It's not this collective thing. Um, even though we see Luthen kind of trying to push it towards that direction, that's not what it is yet. And I think we've seen examples uh, throughout this series and, of course, throughout Star Wars in general of these moments of rebellion. And I've said this a lot on the show, but uh, Vel's line on Aldani too, of everyone has their own rebellion. I think it's so important. And Nemec's line in here of uh, even the smallest uh, act pushes, what is it? Even the smallest act of insurrection pushes our lines forward. And that it all, it all matters, you know, because I think sometimes ordinary people, and if this show is about ordinary people, stepping up to be rebellious against tyranny. Um, so often it can look like this doesn't even matter. This is just a small thing, but it it does. It all matters. It all uh, pushes the lines forward to the point where it's overflowing and it can't be stopped. So good. Just so good. Anyway, <laughs> I love Nemec. I'm so glad he was in this show and uh, the things that you know, never forget that Nemec wanted this manifesto to go to Cassian. He didn't leave it with Val, someone he had been with for months on Aldani. He left it to Cassian because he saw something in Cassian. And I also love this idea, right, that it's not that Cassian is special. I think that's something this show kind of pushes against. But also, he is special. Everyone sees this ability in Cassian. And it's part of him seeing it for himself and also uh, knowing that he needs to and wants to act on the abilities that he does have uh, for something like the Rebellion. Yeah, I also want to comment on the fact that I liked how this manifesto now exists as Nemec's voice. Uh, yeah. I think that it will... Now that we know that Cassian has it and is listening to it, I think that's a really big key here, right? That I don't know if we've underscored exactly that Cassian has had this, I guess, in his possession, but hadn't really opened it. And now he's opened it, right? Now he's listening to it. And I feel like it could be a nice guide in next season for almost like a a sound over, I guess, as Cassian like gets more involved in the rebellion. Um, and I wonder if he'll try to distribute it somehow. I don't know. But I I like that it's Nemec's voice. I like that there's that element of longevity there. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't expect it to be that. I expected it to be almost written. But I think it just makes more sense for the the show. Also, I would read something like this if it was <laughs> uh, uh, like a published work, like an in-universe published work. Um, yeah. I think that would be really cool. I don't know. Yeah. I just thought of actually, anyway. do you think that he's actually reading it, Nemec, or is it like a voiceover of emotion for the show? It's like Cassian reading it in Nemec's voice. I think it's, I think we can expect or think that in Star Recorded. Wars, there's technology that if you write something and put your voice to it, then maybe the voice reads it. Yeah, like an audio no, file I fully accept that, but I just am thinking also like period pieces where, you know, they read the letter, but it's in the voice of the person who wrote it, but clearly well, they're not I there. Well, I think that in the last, yeah, I think in the last episode we actually saw oh, um, him open yeah. that, so, and it made a noise mm -hmm. and the people in the room, like he yeah. was nervous about that. Yeah, so yeah, I think yeah, it yeah. is no, actually no, in-universe right, right. audio. 
Yeah. No, yeah. I forgot about that. Let's touch on Val and Cinta because they were also on Ferrix. And this was a bit of a tense reunion with them, I think, uh, especially when Val first arrives on Ferrix and Cinta doesn't go to meet her, I guess, like pick her up at the transport center. Uh, and I don't know, there was a, a bit of tension in their reunion when Cinta just doesn't even look at Val when she comes in the room and is immediately like back to the telescope and everything. And Val is clearly upset by this. And uh, it takes a couple minutes, I think, for Cinta to realize how kind of frustrated Val is that um, and like Cinta doesn't appear to be excited to see her or anything like that. Uh, so I'm a little worried about Val and Cinta. Uh, of course, we see them kind of collecting their things at the end of the episode. So I am hopeful that we will see them again next season. But I keep thinking, you know, about Cinta's uh, conversation to Val and you know, we take what's left afterwards, right? After the rebellion, that's what we give to each other. And I wonder if Val wants to make that sacrifice still, or if she realizes that uh, she can't when it comes to Cinta, so maybe they shouldn't be together. Uh, or if Cinta, I don't know, it doesn't seem to me like Cinta will relent in how much she gives the rebellion, for example. So I wonder what that means for Val. And I don't know, I think Val has been such a great character this season because while she gives to Mon Mothma what Cinta gave to her, right? A lot of the same words and uh, like inspiration, I guess we could call it. Uh, she can't, it's like she can't give that to herself when it actually comes to her relationship with Cinta. Yeah, totally. I think it needs to be said that I think it's really cool that this, that there is a relationship within the rebellion that's exploring the the cost of being within the rebellion and like mm -hmm. what if in these in this partnership if there's one person that's more into it than you um than the other not you <laughs> then yeah so uh yeah. that that like imbalance that exists what is that like because i think that that isn't being explored with Mon Mothma's relationship, but it's cool that it's being explored with Vel and Cinta's relationship and how, mm -hmm. like, what is the cost and how much does that dig into your own personal relationships and how, um, how much is that sacrifice worth it and how, um, how can you work that out in a partnership and can a rebellion be a partnership? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that all of those are, like, I think, I think back on that quote that was, you know, everyone has their own rebellion. Again, so if everyone has their own rebellion, is it individualized or can it be a partnership, right? Can it be a group? And I think that's a big question as Luthen especially is trying to sew together all these different pieces. Yeah. How can you make it into a formal, the rebellion that we see in A New Hope, right? How do, we, how do we get there? And you get there with trust and that trust I feel like is missing in a lot of different parts in Andor. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that definitely even comes into play with Vel and Cinta. Like, I think when Vel arrives and Cinta wasn't there to get her because she was off following someone, which I think we can, as an audience, can recognize that's a, that was a good choice. Like, it was weird that Dedra was in civilian clothing and yeah. it was interesting that Cinta would follow them. Like, that was a good choice to follow them. Mm. Um, but Vel is clearly hurt by that and hurt that she wasn't given the attention from her partner that she would have if there was no rebellion, right? If, if if someone is visiting, you would want 
that person to meet you, you know? Yeah. And I think that Val on probably on some level understands this, but it doesn't mean that her heart accepts that. Right. And I think, again, how do they work together? How do all these people work together? And how do you trust someone enough that you're going to be successful at the end of the day? And right now it's like, it's working out. It's okay. They're fine. But they're also dealing with some bumps. And I think that those bumps are indicative of the other bumps that it takes to form a partnership, to form a a rebellion, to form a group, to trust everyone. It's tough. Yeah. I think that was the best way to describe it, Charlotte, of like logically Val knows that Cinda is doing the right thing, but it still hurts her heart and she's still upset by it even though like yeah no you should you should be doing these things for the rebellion but you know it's it's still there like lingering totally um okay so since we've talked about vel let's move on to vel's cousin mon mothma okay super interesting considering this entire episode was based off of on ferrix it was when we would jump back to Mon Mothma on Coruscant, it felt like, oh, wow, this is really far away. (laughs) This is a totally different storyline, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I thought it was interesting that right away she basically sets Perrin up. When they get in the car, she's mad. (laughs) And the the question that as that as that scene unspooled was, was Mon Mothma actually mad or is she really throwing Perrin under the bus because she knows that her, uh, her driver, I think his name is Cloris, is listening. And again, in the beginning of this episode, I said that a lot of things were coming to light finally in the finale, including realizing that Cloris spies on Mon Mothma and that he actually is a spy. I think that we had um, our suspicions, especially when Mon said that he was a new driver back, way back in episode four, but we finally see it here. And it really made me kind of cheer a little bit that Mon was using that to her advantage because she still is, she's figuring out how to hide money and she blames Perrin <laughs> for where the money went instead of, we know it's going to the rebellion, but she's like, where'd you, you know, she blames it on him for, um, gambling. And he, I don't think he did that. He didn't do it. And I feel bad for him. I, in that this instance, it, sue me. I feel kind of bad for him, but it's, <laughs> and, and I think it's okay to like feel a little bad for the people that you're supposed to hate in the, in the series. But I mean, it seems like he's like a real person and I don't think he did that. And he also was like, tell me who, who said that? And she doesn't say anything, yeah. which Well, I think, you know, talking about the theme of sacrifice with Mon Mothma and how it's like fully come to Leda and her daughter, right? I think that's what we've kind of been leading to, especially the past few episodes. But there's also this like larger sacrifice of her relationship with Perrin and that it, you know, it never stood a chance and it certainly doesn't now. Um, We talked about the possibility before of if you know, because the last episode where there was like a little bit of sympathy or I didn't hate Perrin as much <laughs> as I have in other episodes when they're at that party. And I forget what he says, but he, oh, it was about the squigs drinks. And she's like, yeah, I've never liked them. And he's like, no, you, you did when we were younger. And she was like, no, I was just pretending. And I think that 
Perrin is like kind of hurt by that a little bit. So we had talked then about, you know, what if Perrin had really tried to have this relationship with Mon Mothma, but they also have like very different morals and like perspectives on the galaxy and, and how things are running right now. And that ultimately prevents them from having a relationship. And that's not a uh, excusing Perrin's uh, own morals, which of course he's like, he could care less about what's going on in the galaxy. So like, we're still not a Perrin fan. <laughs> but in this moment, I think you see that like Mon Mothma is fully sacrificing her family for this cause now of throwing Perrin under the bus for something she knows that he didn't do um, at all. She's, she's like really it, that's a rough thing to do, right? To to your husband, to your partner. And knowing that her treatment of Perrin upsets Leda because Leda is clearly very much team Perrin uh, in this family. So it, it's all uh, cyclical and it all comes back on like Mon Mothma being isolated unto herself, even in her own home, right? And that's where we've seen pretty much her entire storyline take place this season. And so I think... Yeah, when we opened up in this scene in the car and she starts asking him about the gambling money, I was just like, oh, no, I this is totally what she's doing. And man, that is rough. And Perrin is like genuinely upset. And yeah, mm -hmm. it, I have a little bit of sympathy for him in this moment. And mm -hmm. even knowing that he's like not even necessarily pushing or would even want Leda to go into exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's realizing that they're actually on a little bit of the same page about that. Yeah. Kind of changed my perspective a little bit. Yeah. But not enough that I'm like pro parent at all, no. but it does make it more complicated, which I think is Tony Gilroy's whole thing. Yeah. And recognizing that complication is great. The fact that we have a show in which that complication can exist and we can also have those feelings is awesome. Yeah. It like it makes me want to see a show again with like Leda and Perrin where they come around and are like on Mon Mothma's side and they can become this family that works together mm -hmm. for the rebellion. Um, I don't know. I would love to see that. I don't know if we will, uh, particularly with Mon Mothma and Perrin. I think that sacrifice is any chance of a happy marriage and like mm -hmm. all the lies that they've told each other, all the ways that they have like undermined each other just through like snide comments back and forth throughout, you know, however many years that wears you down. And that's like a hard thing to come back from, I think. And I think the real question is later because they go and they meet Davo and his son and uh, his wife is there as well. This kid looked really young, though. Davos' son, mm -hmm. <laughs> he looks younger yeah. than Leda. Um, I know. Which was, I think, on purpose. You're supposed to be, like, shocked by it. Yeah. And not be in support of it as an audience member. Yeah. You're like, whoa. Yeah, exactly. But this is the first time we see uh, Mon Mothma in, I, like, fully traditional Shandrillan clothing. It's something I've actually meant to touch on throughout the season but just like have always forgot, you know? Uh, the fact that we see Perrin, he's often in that uh, it's very like Japanese, Chinese, the like the robes that they wear, it seems very much inspired uh, by that type of traditional clothing. And um, Mon was never really in that type of clothing. But Perrin is, I think, pretty much always wearing uh, that type of clothing. And this last scene, we fully see Mon Mothma in it as well. And 
yeah, it, it's it's symbolic, of course. And everyone in Davos's family is also in that uh, chindril and clothing as well. So I don't know what's going to happen uh, next season with them. I'm nervous. But I have to say one comment about Leda. I've seen some people talk about how Leda sort of can be thought about as this the opposite of Leia. And this mm-hmm. family unit can be seen as the opposite of the Organa family. And I think that is true. Uh, I think that Leia, from what we know about her backstory, um, was accepting of Alderanian tradition, but like wasn't about to follow it to a T at all. She's respectful, but she was is definitely not like conservative in the sense of the way that the Shindrillin situation is, right? And I think Leda is very interested in that when Leia was really not interested in any of that at all. I mean, we even saw that when she was a child, a 10-year-old in in Obi-Wan Kenobi. Mm-hmm. So again, and her her parents are very loving and very doting. And I'm not saying that Mon Mothma and Perrin aren't, but I think they're very accepting of who Leia, like Balin, Balin Breha are very accepting of who Leia is and what she wants to do and things like that. When I, I do think that Mon and Perrin are, especially because of her interest in this like weird culty vibe of, <laughs> of Chandrilla, but I, it's not, it's definitely not to Mon's wishes. And I, I think that there's a lot of ways to compare those two characters. And I think that that will come to light potentially even more next season. And as we see what really happens when when Leia is married off, does she leave the house? Does she move on? Like, how does that affect Mon Mothma? How does that affect Mon and parents' relationship? Yeah. I've, and the other piece of it, too, is like Leia grew up on Alderaan. And yes. we knew that she took place, took part uh, in all of the like traditional Alderanian customs and things like that, particularly in Leia, Princess of Alderaan, when she, with, I forget what the the trial is, but she has like climb a mountain by mm-hmm. herself, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which is pretty intense um, as far as customs go. But I, I'm like really excited to keep thinking about the comparison between Leda and Leia. And now we have this other young person in Davos' son. And then we also have Pac's son, too. I don't know what his name is. Um, he appears a little older than Leda and the the son, but he's still quite young. And to see how all of them begin to interact with the rebellion, I'm really, I hope we get to see more of that and the ways that uh, they feel connected to it or move away from it. And I don't know, I can't help but think um, it's going to be a out of the blue comparison for me, but of Sansa Stark and Game of Thrones and how she wanted that marriage with Joffrey so badly. And then it turned out to be like a really bad call. Uh, that's putting it lightly, right? And mm-hmm. I wonder if Leda will have a similar realization uh, herself, if she will actually be married off, right? Because apparently this is the deal was just an introduction, simply an introduction. Simpl- yeah. I mean, we know that that's loaded, but you know, especially because they're wearing this formal wear, mm-hmm. it feels so. It's not just an introduction. Yeah, it feels. It's like not like two two kids meeting. Yeah, it feels like a betrothal. Yeah, no, it very much does. Uh, but I suppose there is the possibility that they don't actually get married. 
but it feels like that's what's going to happen because those are kind of the themes that have been set up throughout this season. But yeah, again, and Mon's Mon's faith mm -hmm. face at the end. Oh my god, it was rough. Yeah, Yeah. I I still again I've said this every episode. I have hope for Leda. I do, and I I I want to see her uh, grow up and come to her own choices and decisions about what she wants to do in the galaxy, given like her position and her privilege and all of that. Uh, I would love to see a change in her uh, and that maturity, I guess. I also, just one more thing, sorry. I know we're we're harping on this, but I also, I agree with you, but I think the tragedy here is that Mon didn't really get that chance to get out of this traditional marriage with Perrin. And the tragedy is that Mon could have guided her elsewhere and told her it's it's fine. Like, you don't have to follow those traditions. I wish mm-hmm. I didn't or something like that. And she doesn't get the chance to do that. And it's too late once, like, the, the human brain continues to develop until you're 23. And I I feel like she doesn't have a chance to even think about that. Um, to even think that this is wrong because it's already, it will probably be too late. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the tragedy is that it's going to be too late, but it's also never too late. So I, I want to be very clear about that. But the tragedy here is that Mon could have steered her away from it and was fully willing to do that too. And was now put in a position in which she has to continue on with it. Yeah. The sacrifice comes on Mothma's, right? She could have fully refused to even, even thinking about, you know, Leda wanting this on some level, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, She could have, you know, fully put her foot down and it sounds like it's something that Perrin would have probably supported, uh, or at least not like worked against her on. So that's the sacrifice for Mon Mothma is uh, the relationship with her daughter. But what that means actually for Leda in reality you know, when they get married, if they get married or five years later, uh, I think there's a lot of possibility for her in that in that time frame uh, that, yes, maybe she realizes how big of a mistake this was and comes to resent Mon Mothma even more, uh, but then maybe still also finds a way to be a force for good, too, uh, to have her own rebellion within that marriage if it comes to that. So I hope we get to see something like that. But yeah, the sacrifice is for Mon Mothma that she is fully isolated and has sacrificed the most important thing in her world is her daughter and that she is, yeah, completely on her own now, I would say. Mm-hmm. Sad. Bummer. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Let's, <laughs> Let's talk about, the, yeah. Let's talk about the post-credit scene, oh. and I don't want to spend too much time on this. I know there are going to be people who like this, but Caitlin and I were like, we hate this. <laughs> and I just need to be upfront about that, and I cannot lie. I just really did not like this post-credit scene. It felt very anti-what yeah. Andor was about. It- I think it's like fine. It's fine to show that what they were working on is in the Death Star. And like, I know that there were people who were wondering about that. It just was not that interesting to me. And at the very end of the season, when we end on such like a great note with this Luthen and Cassian conversation with Luthen smile, I really thought the post-credit scene when people were talking about that there was a post-credit scene was going to be a little bit more story centric, I guess, versus 
like an Easter egg because it feels like an Easter egg and it just feels like Andor wasn't really about that. So I'm confused. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like, I don't know, like someone caught Tony on his way out the door and we're like, we're going to add this thing in. And he was like, what? Didn't really realize what it was. And suddenly it's like this huge (laughs) end credit scene of the Death Star. It just feels so not Andor. Uh, I think visually it stands out. You and I said it kind of looks like a video game and I think it does. Uh, So I don't think it stands out visually. And I don't know. We all know where Cassian is going. It just felt so heavy handed of Mm -hmm. don't forget the Death Star is being built and Cassian's going to die getting the plans for the Death Star. Like we know, yeah, we know like, that. oh, he worked on the thing that will kill him. Yeah, like, I don't yeah. even know if like that's it. I think it's just like showing that the Death Star is being built. Um, no, because those are the things from the prison. I don't know. It felt like it didn't need to be that. We didn't need to have this end credit scene. Would have been time better spent seeing that Marva is in fact alive in the tunnels, or even like, <laughs> even if even if it wanted to be this Death Star thing, like I almost think it could have been like Luthen or Clea getting an image of the Death Star like back at the antique shop and just kind of sitting with, oh, what even is this? You know, just like uh, a tease for next season. Versus yeah, especially because like a reflection back. All of our Easter eggs have been in the antique shop, so mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess it would have worked there a little bit, but that's assuming we needed it at all, and I don't think we did. And I just don't. Yeah, it it was kind of like a. It felt like a big question mark of what <laughs> at the end of a really intense emotional finale that we didn't need yeah I think what also kills me and this is the last thing I'm going to say about this is that I know that this is what everyone's going to be talking about after this episode is out that like this is going to be the prevailing like YouTube clickbait Mm -hmm. and I don't like that yeah yeah because it feels like it was like written for YouTube clickbait and I just whatever it's not what I think Andor represents I think overall if I can transition into what we thought about this season I think Andor was like an amazing bold swing from Lucasfilm that was a surprise that was the one of the most well-written shows on television right now maybe the best show on TV this year and I am so thankful for the show I think that it was such a wonderful ride yeah I that's all I want to (laughs) say yeah I agree the one other thing I'll say that I'm surprised at is that there was no mention of Cassian's sister in this episode yeah, uh, or really throughout the rest of the season after he left uh, Ferrix for the first time in episode three. So I really hope that that's something that comes back around in season two. I think it will because I think Tony play is playing the long game here, obviously. And it was just such a huge setup and backstory with the sister in the beginning of the season that I really want it to come back around and I gather that like Cassian's storyline it's not that searching for his sister is a selfish thing to do but it's a personal thing to do and now he has a bigger purpose I guess you could say so I hope that at some point he does get a reunion with his sister uh, or we find out what happened to her Um, so I hope that's something that comes back around I was kind of surprised it didn't uh, or even that there wasn't a mention like from Marva about his sister that she told Brasso's to tell him, you know what I mean? Uh, so I hope well, that she does. She did say to like, let it go. So I, I don't even think that she's, she's 
entertaining that possibility. It all has to do with Cassian and Cassian's own motivation there. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I hope I hope it comes back around next season, and I I expect it will. I trust Tony. I trust Tony. Uh, but I trust Tony. I trust Tony. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this season was incredible. I'm excited to watch it all together. Uh, it's going to be an incredible ride, and yeah, I hope we. Um, I hope that season two gets here even faster uh, than season one, because again, season one felt like it took forever to finally arrive, and it'll season two will be here before we know it. But we had the best time with this season and yeah it just feels so like next level for star wars and i hope we continue to see that uh onto season two and uh in future star wars projects as well yeah and it's been such a joy covering this season it's been so fun so caitlin are we gonna do a q a episode like we did for the past couple of seasons of star wars tv yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, we All are. Right, let's do it. Okay. 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 Let's do it. I will post somewhere on some social media. By the time this episode comes out, honestly, Twitter might not exist. So <laughs> there will be something on Patreon. And if you have a question about Andor that you want us to answer in a Q&A episode in a few weeks, please email it to us. Yeah. Now more than ever is the time to follow us on other social media. Social, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our our email is hello at skytalkers.com. Yeah. So email yeah. us your questions, anything that you want us to discuss or something that we didn't discuss. Um, we'll answer it and or we'll try to answer it on a Q&A episode in a couple weeks. Yeah. Well, I do think that is going to wrap up this episode. So thank you guys so much for following along on this Andor journey and all of the coverage that we've gotten to do. The opportunities that we've had with this show has just been incredible. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening and uh, for being excited with us and for us for all of this. It's, it's really meant a lot. And it's because of all of you listening that we get to do these things and uh, bring these interviews and experiences like that to Sky Talkers. So, uh, Thank you so, so much. We really do appreciate it and hope that uh, you feel good about it because we do. And uh, we hope that you like the coverage that we've been able to bring to Sky Talkers this season. And we will absolutely be back for season two. But oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. As I said, uh, as Charlotte said, Twitter could potentially be on its last lens. Who knows? I think. I think it'll be fine, honestly, but I think it'll have some speed bumps in the next couple of months. So yeah, now is the time to follow us on other social media accounts. Uh, if you want to still follow us on Twitter, it's at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Crarity and mine is at Caitlin Plusher. Uh, but then we do have our website, SkyTalkers.com, our email, hello at SkyTalkers.com, our Instagram and our TikTok and Facebook. Uh, just search SkyTalkers Podcast and we'll be on all all of those platforms, great places to find us uh, if the Twitter apocalypse does in fact happen. And if you have left us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify recently, thank you so, so much. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And if you have a couple seconds to spare and would like to leave us a five-star review on either of those platforms or your podcasting platform of choice, we would be so grateful. It really uh, helps other people find our show. 
And if you're interested in other ways to support our show, ways to get involved in our Discord community, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. Yes. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons. Alex, Bailey, Daniel, Debo, Derek, Dylan, Emma, Fifi, Froppy, Jacqueline, James, John, Catherine, Katie, Kelly, and Kimberly. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Thank you.